Hi, so my name's Kat and I'll be reading, taking us through the Bible reading. So we've got three uh, separate little bits of the Bible we'll be reading today. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 13, then skip down to the end of chapter 13 and then we'll be uh, taking a little bit out of the middle of chapter 14. So starting at chapter 13 of Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Okay, now moving down to verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. There is it, here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites lived near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people who saw that... that All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. And we're just going to move over to chapter 14, starting at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a great nation, into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt 
and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has had a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So it should have been the most wonderful time, um, but Carla's pregnancy was anything but glamorous. Complications, long labor and exhaustion dominated the last eight months. And she's now overwhelmed with little sleep. And she knew this was not how I planned the birth of my child to be. Lou walked into the office, flustered as the phone rang for the third time that morning. It was 7.15. No one was there. He just needed to get a dent into the mountain of emails. His dream engineering job was smothered in red tape and paperwork. Angus was struggling with the ongoing effects of a really bad financial decision about 20 years earlier. Every time he made a purchase, he was reminded of the past. What hope did he have? Especially with rates rising this week as well. Today we're in the book of Numbers and we're journeying through this over the next few weeks. And we're looking at God's people as they travel the wilderness towards a land, towards an inheritance, towards a promise that has been guaranteed by their God. Numbers is the book about a journey between the already of being saved and rescued from Egypt as God's people, but the not yet of getting their future inheritance of land. And last week, as we began the book, we saw that as they travel this wilderness journey, this wilderness path, God had actually arranged in Numbers 1 to 10 their entire life around him. Family groups to give them an identity and keep them safe. God in the middle of their camp, his presence leading them by day and by night, going when he goes, staying when he stays. God has set them up to flourish in the life with him. All they needed to succeed was there. But as Carla and Lou and Angus realized, and as God's people realized today, the wilderness of this world brings with it challenges. We feel fragile and fear. Unexpected moments come at us. We're overwhelmed and we want to run away sometimes because the journey doesn't go how we plan. Maybe you can relate today. And this is where we find God's people. They're sitting at Kadesh, which is the borderline of their new inheritance, their land. The green part is the land of Canaan. The next phase of their life is about to begin. And all they have to do is walk on in. But as we heard in the reading, um, they actually rebel in a spectacular way and they spend 40 years going in circles. And as we think about this today, what's important to know is that this story is given to us not as a story to copy. If you're honest, you probably mimic it too often anyway, but we're not given this to copy because some examples we have, some negative examples are actually good examples. The writer of a New Testament book called 1 Corinthians gives us a commentary on these exact verses. In fact, most of Numbers in 1 Corinthians 10. And the writer says, these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things they did. Their failure is our lesson. A lesson not to harden our hearts in the seasons of life. A lesson not to be deceived by sin 
or rebel from God's loving rule and care. In fact, most of Numbers is actually a lesson explaining this to us as well. You can see the structure of the book. We saw the first 10 chapters, nothing much happened. God set them up for success. And then from now on until chapter 25, it just goes downhill week after week after week. And the first generation we learn about today spends 40 years in the desert before the second generation picks it up but still has a failure. But it actually ends on a high note. The point is that numbers actually trend spiritually down. So, how do we learn from their mistake today? and not trend downwards into unbelief and rebellion like they did? Well, we'll explore that. And I hope today would steady your heart and mind, give you hope as you face the challenges and difficult seasons in life. And if you're here and you're not quite sure what it means to trust this God that we're talking about this morning, then I hope the next few minutes helps you think about what life with with God on the road to life could look like. Now, this section has, uh, has two reports, and so I've broken it up into two reports as well. The Scouts report, and then God's report of the people. So, we'll look at it in two halves. Firstly, we see the Scouts report at the start of verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of the leaders. Ten days travel from last week to this week, grumbling along the way like kids in the back of a car to get here, mind you, but much worse. And as they begin this new season of life right on the border, they are reminded again in the phrase, the Lord said, I am giving this land, that his word assures them he will be over them and with them and as they go in. And isn't assurance one of the greatest things you can have when you do new things? One of the greatest comforts, you know, first day of school to know mum's there and as Tim was saying, has packed your eggs separate from your beetroot and cheese cubes, to know that she'll always give you jelly when you go out when the sewing machine goes on, or or having a friend by your side, having people to reach out before surgery, or to cheer you on when you start any job, just the assurance of people, is that not a wonderful thing? And God does it here. You see, not only is God present, but he gives them a taste of what is to come. Sends them in to explore the land, one from each tribe. Twelve tribes, one representative. And then Moses gives a stump speech to these people. Assess the cities. Tell me about the soil. What's the land like? Bring back some of the fruit so we know what it's going to look like. It's like the sample you get from the beauty shop or the free food at Costco that says, you know, this can be yours if you just go over there and get it. Except this isn't a scouting mission to see if they should go in. It's to learn more about the place God is leading them into. Because their inheritance is already good. God is trustworthy. He's sending them into the land to scout it out. So they have more reason to trust him. And then the whole community waits. 40 long days. They go from north to south. You can, we'll go back and you'll see it again. One bottom to top. And they come back. And then 40 days they're waiting. And then they all gather. And then they they gather around the spies. And they came back to Moses and Aaron in verse 26. And the whole Israelites there. And they reported to them. And they showed them the fruit of the land. It's like the building inspection for your new home. Have you ever been there? 
If you built that, that one final report you need from the builder just so that you get the keys and it's all okay to go in or, or waiting for the house and anxiously hoping for that phone call to say, yes, your offer was accepted. This is the level of anticipation here. But often the challenge of life in the wilderness is what we see and experience is not what we expected or hoped. We look around and instead of seeing what God's up to, we see obstacles and opponents which lead to fear and unbelief and blaming God and ultimately rebellion. And that's what happens here. You see, God's provision and his presence and his leaders should have set God's people up to know without a doubt as they travel on, God is for them. And the leader should have come back and said, team, it's a few challenges, but if we keep our eyes fixed on God, I reckon we can do it. Because he's faithful, right? They just need to keep their focus on their faithful God. Corrie ten Boom, a Christian woman, said from a POW camp, let God's promises shine on your problems. And there's a slither of sunlight in this verse, because in verse 27 they say, we went to the land and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. Yeah, it's good. God's done good, actually. Milk and honey is a way of saying it's fertile, it's good in every way. They agree. God hasn't been lying to us, team. This is a good place. But the land evaluation isn't the problem. Ten of the twelve scouts add an appendix to the report. They didn't bury it in paperwork. They actually made it the front cover. And it caused the whole community to side with them and against the word of God. They say groups of people live here and they're, they're tall and they're strong and they're from the descendants of these really mighty warriors and, and, and we don't like them very much. And actually, we're, it's not good, actually, because um, compared to them in verse 33, we're like grasshoppers. And grasshoppers were the smallest uh, edible creature in that part of the world. And so what they're saying is we're going to be eaten alive if we go in and you don't want to be eaten alive, do you? That is, we hadn't planned it like this. All they could see was insurmountable challenges in front of them. And instead of admitting they're scared to death, and instead of turning to God for help, they actually blame God for not caring as much as they do. Because in verse 3 of chapter 14, they put up this pious front and they say, you know, if we go in, our children will be killed. They're saying, God, if he really cared about us, would care about our families, and he doesn't. I mean, isn't that what we are tempted to do sometimes as well? God, you don't see the way things are. You don't see my challenges. Therefore, you are not good, and I cannot trust you, because if you really knew about it, you would see what's in front of me. Fear has led to unbelief, to blaming God, which results in rebellion here. But then two of the scouts... A man called Joshua and a man called Caleb have a different take. Now, you must see, they were part of the twelve that walked on the same dirt, saw the same fruit, saw the same city, saw the same people in those places as the other ten. But their eyes said, actually, I think God is able. God will provide, God will protect. Same vision, but two very different responses. Because Caleb and Joshua looked at their situation from the perspective of God and trusting Him. Faith in God's promises is what will get them through the wilderness, right? And notice too that there's nothing about the amount of faith they have to have here either. The amount of faith they have does not make a difference. 
Faith isn't like capacity, like your morning coffee. Big, full, and only then will it have an effect. No, faith is like a rock. Which means the object your faith is in is what matters. And the Bible's claim is always that faith in and on God's character and vision is what counts. Faith is designed to be strong in all seasons and moments in life. And the ten should have shaped the people towards that faith, but they don't, because the whole community, in verse 14, verse 1, broke into loud cries. And then you see what happens. They wish their past was written differently, if only we died in Egypt. And they complain about the present, we will die if we go in. They grumble against their leaders, let's get a new one. They refuse to enter the place God has led them to, provided for them, and promised to them, So they reclaim the future by saying, let's go back to Egypt, right? We want a new future. Now, this, of course, is the very real struggle in translating God's character and future promise into a new situation. Have you ever felt shaky and uncertain in a new season of life? You may affirm, God created the heavens and the earth by his word. You might believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and will one day make all things new and restore everything to himself, But does not anxiety sometimes breed in us when we wait for medical results? Or the fear of not having a job? Or realizing that the age you've just entered in life means you can't do the things you once did and it's just really tiring? Or the stress of not finding a house? Because the road of life is filled with moments like this. But faith is built for the journey. You don't realize what it means for God to be an anchor unless you have to put it down in a storm. And so, I mean, ultimately, the question as we move on says, what is God going to do with these stubborn people? They're stuck here. They want to go back to Egypt and kill Moses. How long will God continue with this lot who show him such contempt? Because this isn't the first time they've done this. Well, That's point two. Just as the scouts gave a report, so God now gives a report, but not of the wilderness of the land. He gives them a report of the wilderness of their hearts. In verse 11 to 12, we we feel and hear God's frustration at his people. So he pronounces judgment upon them. Moreover, the people need to know as well what they're going to be saved from. Wait, what are they saved? Yeah, saved from to know what it means to be saved to. I said that right. Moses gives, God gives his report to Moses so Moses is able to understand the gravity of their rebellion so they can understand what it means to be shown mercy. God tells Moses what he's going to do so that Moses can also intercede on their behalf. And just as Caleb tried to intercede and say, team, we can do it, let's go, Moses intercedes and asks God to show mercy. And to do this, Moses says some really interesting things and he leans into God's character. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he says, In accordance with your great love, forgive the sins of these people just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt. It's an ongoing thing until now. You see, Moses replies based on two fundamentally important truths, God's glory and God's merciful nature. And he says, God, if you were to wipe them out right now, that'll cause a conflict with your glory. 
because they're the people you've promised to make a covenant with and bless all the nations with them. And Moses says, if you do that, if you wipe them out, the nations will laugh at you that God was not able to keep his people as they rebel. Don't destroy them all, but keep your glory front and center. And I think you'll get more glory by showing abundant lower love and mercy. And then Moses quotes the most quoted Bible verse in the whole of the Bible. It's Numbers 34. It says, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. This tells of God's core character traits rooted in generosity and mercy and love. Moses says, God, your primary attributes are these, but your primary attributes does not include anger. What I mean by that is that God is not by default an angry God. Sin, evil, injustice, anger, God. But if those things never existed, we would never see God's righteous anger displayed against them. God would not be good if he did not get angry at evil. He would not be good if he did not judge evil. And he would not be merciful if he didn't respond to the intercession of his people either. Which is why, in verse 19, Moses says, please pardon in accordance with your love which you've done so often. Do you know what God does at that moment? He hears and he pardons. And he won't destroy the entire nation and start over again. But the punishment does fall on the current generation because they won't get in the land. Why? Because they've refused to. Yet the very children that they were so worried about, they were once concerned about, will get in by God's grace. God's mercy and grace will be extended to the next generation because of Moses' intercession. And the other thing that this is a reminder of is this does not talk about losing salvation. God is speaking of a physical land here, not an eternal punishment. The point of the narrative is about grumbling on the pathway of life with God and how serious God takes rebellion from his word. But still, they don't get it. Towards the end of chapter 14, they show a sorriness and repentance for their failure, but they don't submit to God's word. They're sorry for the consequence, not their rebellious hearts. Because they say to themselves, oh, let's go. We can get in now. Yep, 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 let's do it. Okay, and the team rallies together, and they try and get in, and Moses, you imagine him sitting there going, oh, it's not going to work. I mean, God has spoken, you rebelled. God speaks again, and you're rebelling again, thinking you can do something to me. Just don't go in. It's not going to work. And at the very end of chapter 14, they cross the border, and the nations run them out of the land. It's not a pretty picture. And from here on in, one year for every day they were spying out the land, scouting out the land, they have to wander in the desert until that generation is no longer around. And actually, they don't get it up to this point either because they still rebel and grumble from God. But remember, this is a picture for us to learn from, to remind us about navigating life. And the key idea is all about the eyes of faith. It's a confronting lesson, and it should be. Moreover, if we're honest, we fail to obey God too, don't we? I don't believe his promises especially in new seasons of life. 
I like to trust my own strength and wisdom because it's more tangible sometimes. I love to hear voices that agree with me and what I want. I like to hide in unbelief because sometimes it's easier to make excuses than admitting I'm afraid or scared or don't know. And when we're confronted with our own evil, moreover too, we like to fix it, and often in a more rebellious way than just submitting to God's word in faith. Which means I need someone like Caleb and Joshua to assure me that God's with me in the new season of life I'm in. I need someone like Moses to mediate God's mercy to me in the times that I fail in unbelief too. And I think we're probably all on that same boat. Which is why Hebrews 2 and 3 pick up numbers. And they give us, the author of Hebrews gives us a vision of Jesus to look to. The one who did mediate mercy and grace for our rebellion. Our rebellion from his word, our rebellion when we fail. Who does walk with us by the Spirit every day of this life. Who gives us the eyes of faith so that we keep them fixed on Jesus as we journey on even when life looks totally different to what we planned or hoped. Who gives us a vision to see there's a wonderful future. I mean, after all, we've missed it, but did you notice the land was good? God was giving them a taste of how good it would be with him. They just have to trust him along the way. Because God in his kindness gives us a glimpse too of what is to come when he recreates and makes everything new. You know, Carla's overwhelmed and stressed with her newborn. But that night, the Spirit reminds her of Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thoughts of being a failed mum, six hours after giving birth, tempt her mind and heart, anxiety over how to juggle work and family and social expectations beat down upon her. But she is a saviour, who knows all too well weakness and fatigue and frailty, whose life ebbed away on the cross to give her joy and hope that he is with her right now, leading her on. And what counts is God's grace meeting her there as it always has 26 years before that. And Angus will probably never recover financially, but you know what? He's learning that what counts is not his bank account, But what Hebrews 3 verse 1 shows him, he doesn't need to live in unbelief or blame but can turn to God and the future that God has secured for him because he knows that he shares in the heavenly calling. Angus has an inheritance with Jesus, a future hope that can't be taken away by faulty works or poor decisions. And sometimes he gets a glimpse of that in the church he belongs to with those who also love Jesus And as he learns to let God and thanks to God fill his heart and mind, he finds a joy in that and what is to come. And by 10.30 that morning, Lou, who had already had three coffees, realised that what it meant to fix your thoughts on Jesus meant in the wilderness of work, Jesus actually likes him and values him and sees him and honours him and knows him and loves him, notwithstanding his performance some days. And because he's secure in that, he can work approved already, humbly, faithfully, not overwhelmed, but for God's glory. And because of that, it turns out Jesus is the best person to fix your eyes on. 
Therefore, let us not harden our hearts as they did in the wilderness. Instead, to fix your thoughts on Jesus and the eternal reward, knowing that as we journey on every day with the presence of God in us, with Jesus with us and the joy of what lies ahead to fill our hearts and minds. Because faith in Jesus is how you make it through the wilderness. The end of Hebrews in chapter 13 reminds us we don't have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. And as Matthew Henry once said, the world is our passage, not our portion. So let's live that way this week. And would you join me every day in keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter and author of our faith. Let's pray. And then let's sing to that God. Our great God, from eternity past, you saw and know us. You formed us and created us. You've given us life on this earth and then new life in Jesus. Through the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising all the shame and has given us a vision of forgiveness and grace and of what is to come. So keep our eyes fixed on that. Yes, the challenges are real, life is hard, but we do it with you, with a God who stepped into this life to come and get us and walk with us and bring us home. Give us grace for the journey and now, Lord, may we sing. Sing of the joy of knowing that you are on our side, all because of Jesus. Amen.